You have a Bible with you this morning. Turn with me to John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise he showed himself. There were gathered together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana of Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter said unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. And that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said unto them, Children, do you have any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast a net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find. And they cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his fisher's coat unto him, for he was stripped of it, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were, two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fish. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus said unto them, Bring of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of great fish, an hundred and fifty and three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus said unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took bread and gave it to them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? He said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, Feed my lambs. He said to him the second time, Again, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? He said unto him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said unto him, Feed my sheep. He said unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Do you love me? And he said unto him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said unto him, Feed my sheep. Verily, verily, I say unto you, when you were young, you dressed yourself and walked wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch forth your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Amen. And that is the word of God. Talk is cheap, but sometimes money is also cheap. 
What that simply means is that our $1 saved does not buy us as much as it did just 12 months ago. When Jesus warned us not to lay up treasure on earth, he wasn't merely warning us of thieves. Jesus, being God, knew that in a fallen world, inflation is real. And so we ought to trust God rather than the total sum of money in our retirement accounts. Because we ought to humbly remember that God could blow away that value of an entire life savings in an instant. Not too long ago in our past, World War I ended on November 11th, 1918. As the loser of the war, Germany was forced to pay for the war. In 1921, these reparations were set at 269 billion marks, or roughly $32 billion. An astronomical sum, which at the time would have taken until 1988 to repay. Later that year, the sum was reduced out of mercy to 226 billion marks, still considered, however, a staggering sum by scholars. Reparations came in various forms, including coal, steel, intellectual property, for example, the trademark for aspirin, and agricultural products. But then in 1923, Germany defaulted on its ability to deliver further amounts of coal and steel. Workers stopped working. Inflation skyrocketed. And in response, the German government began printing more and more money to pay its debts and created an astronomical hyperinflation, the worst ever seen in the history of civilization. Let me just give you a sense of just how bad hyperinflation was in Germany. In 1914, one U.S. dollar was worth four German marks. By 1921, one dollar was worth 75 marks. In February of 1923, $1 was worth 48,000 marks. In October of that same year, 1923, $1 was worth 440 million marks. By November of that same year, 1923, $1 was worth 4.2 trillion marks. People literally needed wheelbarrows of German cash simply to buy one loaf of bread. Seemingly overnight, the German mark had become worthless. Entire life savings, imagine working an entire life, saving for retirement, entire savings were wiped out, not by thieves, but by hyperinflation. National frustration set in, and as a result of that anger and frustration, Germany turned to a man named Adolf Hitler, a brilliant speaker, moved the masses, and everyone voted for his Nazi party. Hitler spoke with a passion and a desperate nation followed. But as I said at the outset of my sermon, talk is cheap. Hitler ultimately was unable to deliver on his promises, and we know how that story ended. Now, in today's scripture text, Jesus is essentially telling Peter, three times if you will, Peter, talk is cheap. In this very famous passage, Jesus 
questions Peter three times about his love for him. And prior to Jesus' trial and crucifixion, Peter is infamously quoted in Matthew 26, 33, having promised Jesus that even if everyone else forsakes you, yet will I never forsake you. Such talk likely seemed heartfelt at the time. But when the trial of Jesus began, Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times and ran out in tears. In today's chapter, after his resurrection, Jesus is now recommissioning Peter back into position. We like that word, don't we? Commission. He's recommissioning Peter. And after asking him three times about his love, he tells him to back it up. Don't just talk the talk, now walk the walk. Back it up with your life. In other words, Peter, talk is cheap. The last time you talked, you bailed on me, you flaked. You popped smoke. This time, show me that you love me by sticking around and feeding my people. And if you leave here this morning with just one lesson, one lesson, it was Billy Graham who once said, a a, a sermon without application is like just spraying a car with gasoline. You might make a little bit into that hole, but you just miss a lot of it on the floor. If you don't leave here with an application, it's lost. This is it. The application is this. True Christians do not simply love, simply talk about loving Jesus. Rather, true Christians show it by caring for God's people. Amen? Let's say that one more time. True Christians do not simply talk about loving Jesus. They back it up by actually caring For God's people in real, tangible ways. Your presence matters. This is not virtual. Tangible. Now, it's obvious by feeding you the word of God this morning, I am tangibly showing God that I love him. In fact, when I do a sermon prep, that's what goes into my mind. My care for you but it is undergirded by understanding that ultimately this is how I demonstrate my love for God. By attending worship this morning to hear God's word being taught, you are tangibly showing God, not just talking, you are tangibly showing God that you love him. Your presence matters. It is one thing to talk. It is far more important to act. Demonstrate your love for Jesus Now, the Apostle John himself was the son of Zebedee. He was a Palestinian Jew and a member of Jesus' inner apostolic circle during his earthly ministry. Remember, you know, it's often said Jesus loves the world. That's true. But he loved the twelve. And then within the twelve, he had three who were part of his inner circle, if you will. And whether or not God shows favoritism is a topic for a sermon for another day, but Nevertheless, John was part of this inner circle during Jesus' earthly ministry. And history reveals, as per verse 23, John outlived all the other 11 disciples of Christ and died close to 100 A.D. Having celebrated Good Friday recently, we know that the first disciple to go was Judas by suicide. The other ten would expire. John was the last one. And John's gospel here ends with the 21st chapter and this third post-resurrection of Jesus. His goal is to show his readers that Jesus was and is God. 
Remember, kind of look at the different heresies and religions in the world. The commonality that they have, more often than not, is the denial of Jesus' deity. The Muslims say that Jesus was no one but a prophet. In fact, for them, it's blasphemy to call Jesus God. Jehovah Witnesses, Michael the Archangel changed him to Jesus, not God. Here, Jesus is clearly God. Jesus is divine. He is God in the Gospel of John. And John sets out to teach everyone here through his word that Jesus is God. And so it is befitting of the Gospel that it ends with another miracle. This time, a miraculous catch of 153 fish. In fact, in addition to once again reaffirming Jesus' deity through this miracle, the account of the miraculous catch of fish gives us additional lessons of faith. Now, what are they? For starters, we know that this account occurred after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Although Jesus had called all 12 of his disciples to forsake their old vocations and become preachers, we now see seven of them out in the sea, returning back to their old vocation of fishing. This isn't just, we need to catch a meal. They're fishing at night so they could sell the catch in the morning. When we read verse 3, we discover that this expedition is led by none other than Simon Peter, the once notorious fisherman of Galilee. It's full circle, if you will. This is very reminiscent of when Jesus first called Peter to leave his nets and follow him. To paint the fuller picture, the Apostle John uses the word immediately in verse 3 to show just how eager these seven were in attempting to re-enter their old professions. Peter says, I'm going back to fishing. They all said, me too. And it says, immediately, they went back into the boat. They all immediately jump into the boat that night. They hope to catch fish that night. They want to sell the fish in the morning. But as God would graciously have it, and I say graciously, how many times are we so happy that God doesn't give us what we want? God graciously causes them to catch nothing that night. He frustrates their endeavor. And it says in verse 3, that night they caught nothing. No doubt by the morning when Jesus appears in verse 4, these men are weary, sleepless, hopeless. Then with one word, at the mere command of Jesus, the creator of the universe, verse 6 said that such a multitude of fish appeared that they had trouble pulling their nets to shore. But while we often harp on the miraculous catch, I want to assert that their non-catch was just as important that night. Because it is through the conjunction of both that Jesus teaches them another powerful lesson. It says, if Jesus had to reteach them, if I call you to be my preacher, then don't worry about silly things like money. 
Heaven and earth are mine, and I will ensure that you will have all your needs met. You just worry about preaching my word. God provides. You know what I love about this account? I love verse 9. Read verse 9. The huge catch of fish by itself would have been sufficient of a miracle indeed. But when you read verse 9, it says that Jesus didn't even need their catch. As soon as they arrived on land, they see that Jesus already had not just fish, but fish, fire, and bread. He had a full breakfast waiting for them. My, we serve a God who provides. Yes, it was a miraculous catch, but when they get to the shore, he already had fish. Talk about really feeling worthless. Talk about glorifying God and his power to the max. God is telling them, as he's telling all of us, trust me, I'll provide. The breakfast will always be waiting for you on the shore. But so often we are like the disciples, are we not? We jump into action without consulting God, without prayer, and without any real sense of divine direction. I don't believe the disciples prayed before he, they, they all jumped back into their old professions. And so we honestly should not be surprised and upset when things don't work out as the hours pass throughout the night. I think about it. The, the disciples immediately jump into action. They caught nothing all night. Jesus gives one word and immediately all the fish appear. There is power in the voice of God. How better would it be for us? How better would we fare in life if we simply spent more time each day taking our requests to God in prayer? Friends, we neglect our most powerful resource when we neglect God. Now, the second half of this morning's passage focuses on Jesus' dialogue with Peter. I appreciate, I, I do, I really appreciate this. I had a very strict father growing up. I, 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 I appreciate this. In verse 15, Jesus waits until after breakfast to have this discussion with Peter. He lets him enjoy his breakfast first. Because this is... This is going to be a tough talk. After all, in verse 19, Jesus would prophesy to Peter that one day he will be crucified for his faith. It would not be an easy conversation. And so Jesus graciously permits Peter to first enjoy his breakfast. Now, a couple things about this passage are relatively obvious. For example, it's rather obvious that Jesus likely questioned Peter about his love three times because Jesus denied him three times at his trial. You remember that. So this is restorative, intentionally so. If he had denied him four, it would have been four. Five, it would have been five. So in doing so, Jesus was effectively, he was effectively reinstating, recommissioning, or even undoing what Peter had done. He was recommissioning Peter back to his position. A position of leadership, not to lead others to fish, but a position of leadership 
to teach the church to fish for men. Second, it's rather obvious that sheep and lamb are not literal sheep and lamb. These are terms referencing Christians. And third, Christ's command to feed my sheep is a reference to preaching and teaching. And as one of the early future leaders of the church, Peter would be responsible for preaching and teaching the Word of God. In doing so, he would be feeding God's sheep. Jesus was instructing Peter to demonstrate his love for him by teaching correct doctrine and preaching the gospel. And so he tells all of us, the surest way you can demonstrate your love for God is by going out into a lost and broken world and sharing the gospel with this world. But what is the gospel? I make it really simple. It's from the Bible, 1 Corinthians 15, four points. There is a God who is just, holy, love. All humans are sinners, headed to hell, deserving of God's wrath in hell because of our sins. But God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life and He died on the cross and paid for all of your sins if you believe in Him. And then He historically resurrected from the grave on the third day, defeating death. It's not a myth. Jesus resurrected from the grave. But lastly, we must personally repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, God, and Savior in order to have eternal life. You will not be saved by being in church. Last week we asked a question in Bible study. When was Thomas saved? And I agree with what one person said. Although he went with Jesus three years in ministry, I don't believe he was saved until that moment when he put his hand into his side and felt his nail-pierced hands and made that famous declaration, My Lord and my God. Sometimes we could go an entire lifetime of just doing church and not be saved. Are you saved this morning? Time is running out. Salvation comes by only one way, and that's by believing in the gospel that I just proclaimed. So as I close this morning, I wish to draw your attention to the one thing that is not so obvious about this morning's passage. Hmm. What could that be? What's not obvious is what Jesus meant with his question in verse 15. Let's read the question. Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me more than these? What was Jesus referencing when he asked more than these? Ever thought about that? Scholars are divided over this question. Some believe Jesus was asking if Peter loved him more than the other disciples loved him. In other words, Simon, do you, does your love for me exceed these others' love for me? Others believe Jesus was asking if Peter, P, 
if Peter's love for Jesus exceeded his love for the other disciples. After all, they were close friends. In other words, Peter, do you love me as your best friend? Although these are your close friends. But here's a third possibility. The third possibility is that Jesus was asking if Peter loved him more than his huge catch of fish. Hmm. The fish would have been on the shore. Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than financial success? I wrestled with that one when I was preparing this message, and um, no one will ever know for sure. Scholars are divided, and I'm not making this a point of contention, but as I read the entirety of John, I recall how Peter denied Christ out of fear and self-preservation. I believe Jesus might have at least been partially referencing to that last possibility. It's mind-blowing if you start thinking about that. In other words, Peter, it's time you stopped worrying about your finances and your self-preservation. It's time you love me more than yourself. And the way you will demonstrate that love is by loving others, fellow Christians. In fact, one day you will love me so much and self-preservation will be so extinguished that you will willingly be crucified for me and demonstrate your faith. Simon Peter, do you love me more than yourself? Brothers and sisters, as you leave here today, focus in on the final two words in verse 19, follow me. In my Bible, it's in red. It means Jesus said it. In those old-fashioned Bibles, words of Christ in red. And what really You know, it gets me thinking. Peter could have easily said, no, thank you. I don't know, you know, when you think about it, when when someone, when you came to Christ and someone shared the gospel with you, as I shared with you from the pulpit today, likely there wasn't a prediction of your martyrdom preceding the gospel offer. Peter has to make a decision. Jesus just told him, if you follow me, you're going to die. You're going to be crucified. And then he says, follow me. He could have easily said, no, thank you, and left. But he didn't. And as a result, he changed history. As a result, we are all sitting here this morning because of men like Peter, John, Paul, Because they decided to follow, no matter the cost. Today, Jesus is asking each one of you to follow him, and you might just get one shot, one opportunity. No one else could do it for you. It is unique, and it must be personal. He's asking you. Peter looked around, left and right. He said, what about this man, Jesus? What will he do for you? Jesus said, don't worry about that. You follow me. 
And so today, if you hear his voice, you have to make a decision. It's going to be costly. And you're going to look at your fish on the shore and you're going to have doubts whether or not it's worth following this Jesus. But I will say this, if verse 19 speaks to you today, I am imploring you, follow Christ. You will not regret the decision, not now, nor into eternity. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, I thank you.